the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report number 120, August 1975. One of the more important people in medieval life was the miller. Then, far more than now, bread was basic to man's diet and life. In terms of estate and calling, the miller should have been one of the more highly esteemed men in the community, because his was a most necessary function. In reality, he was one of the most hated of men. Chaucer's Canterbury Pilgrims delighted in hearing of Ribald's story about a miller because all shared the common dislike for millers. A medieval riddle asked, quote, What is the boldest thing in the world? Unquote. Answer, quote, A miller's shirt, for it clasps a thief by the throat daily. Unquote. All kinds of laws were passed to try to control millers but they failed because the heart of the problem was not dealt with. The problem was monopoly. The millers, working under a lord, an abbot, or bishop, or the knights templars, were granted a monopoly on all milling in their area. No man could go to another miller, or use a hand mill, except on severe penalty and serious trouble. This monopoly, very profitable to the miller and his overlord, also meant no competition and, as a result, high and exorbitant profits as well as great inefficiency. The fee for milling was more than a fee. It was a harsh and brutal tax on the people. Chaucer said of his miller that the man knew how to steal grain and to charge thrice over for milling it, and yet was reasonably honest as millers go. The miller was a necessary member of society, but because his position had been used to gain a stranglehold over the people, men did everything possible to avoid using his services, to gain other means of food, and to undercut the prestige and position of the miller. From a social necessity, the miller had descended to the level of a social plague. There was nothing in milling as such to make millers evil men any more than there is anything in church or state as such to make either by nature and necessity evil. In fact, millers, despite their disrepute in medieval England, were obviously superior people because their descendants, who today bear the name Miller, have a long and demonstrable record of superiority. Criminals and welfare recipients bearing that name are uncommon. The problem was 
that what should have been an honorable estate and calling was turned into a vicious monopoly and a social plague. Millers were problems, not mainstays to medieval man. The analogy to the modern state is an obvious one. Instead of confining itself of the realm of civil justice, the modern humanistic state has extended a monopolistic power over one area of life after another. As the central means of protection against criminals and against foreign invaders, it has a necessary function, and the loyalty and patriotism it once inspired was great. As the monopolistic oppressor, it has become a feared and hated enemy, an oppressive taxing power whose exactions are beginning to destroy society. The most elementary function of the state is policing, but Americans are now spending more money on private forms of policing than the state does. This is a clear indication that the state, in its quest for power, is failing to discharge its most elementary and basic service. The failure of the modern state is thus far greater than the failure of the medieval miller, or, for that matter, the medieval church. The monopoly enjoyed by Church and Miller led to their rejection, and today there are on all sides signs of a growing disillusionment and incipient rejection of the modern humanistic state. The matter has been very aptly summed up in the title of an excellent article in the February 1975 number of the California Real Estate Magazine, written by a friend of Chalcedon, Frank J. Walton. Quote, government. It's the problem, not the solution. Unquote. Men have been asking the problem to give the answers. It has been man's faith in the state, his humanism, which has led him into his present crisis, and disillusionment is not enough to take him out of it. Some of the best analysis of the decay of Rome, written by Romans of the day, were also the most impotent of statements. Problems do grow so great that awareness of them is finally inescapable for most men. But we have too long labored under the silly idea that knowing the problem is half the answer. Knowing the problem is simply knowing the problem. The Bible gives us God's answer. It rests first of all in His regenerating power and second in the application of His law to the problem of life. The answer is not in man's hatred nor in man's love nor is it a new combination of men and organizations. Scripture gives us God's plan of action for victory, for the godly reconstruction of all things according to His law and under the authority of His Son. There is no greater sign of hope today than our world crisis. They witness to the collapse of the enemy's power and the impossibility of his world plan. If all were going well today, then we would indeed have cause to tremble and to be afraid, because it would mean the decay of justice, judgment, and mercy. It would mean that God's mercy had been withdrawn from us, but our crosses are evidences of God's judgment against the present world order, and we had better see them as such. They are evidences of the decay and approaching collapse of world humanism and its dreams. Look to your foundations. If they are being shaken, you are in the wrong camp, or else you are placing your trust in what must pass away. Calcedon Report number 121, September 1975. 
Communism does not need to defend itself militarily in the same way as do other forms of politics, because it is usually on both sides of every border. It is on the march in enemy territory as a militant faith. Its real strength is its religious appeal. However, as a false religion unable to deliver on its promises, its defeat begins wherever it is victorious, and that a disillusioned people then must be kept in suppression by force. It is thus destined to become one of the biggest failures of the 20th century. Wherever a people rely on the military as their first line of defense, they are lost. Military strength is a necessity, but a reliance on it for security is a disaster. If men rely on the sword for their defense, our Lord made clear they shall perish by the sword. Matthew 26:52 because, quote, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, unquote. Matthew 4, 4. The first line of defense is a true and living faith. In the 19th century, when the U.S. had little military power except in wartime, U.S. power moved men all over the world, and America was the dream and ideal of millions. In those years, the U.S. peacetime army numbered from 200 to a maximum of 20,000 shortly before World War I. Yet its influence made European and Asian autocracies afraid because of the, quote, subversive, unquote, infiltration of American beliefs and practices. In every situation of need, American aid, not from the federal government, but from the people, was a decisive factor in every area of the world. As against defense by military power, the American strength, then, was a strong offensive by means of a sense of Christian mission. Earlier, Christian Europe had commanded the world with that sense of mission and power, then America. A primary reliance on military or police defense is the last resort of impotent men, where men's minds and passions see force as the essential answer. It means that faith, while professed, is lost. The cry of, quote, kill the black, white, yellow, communist, fascist, or what have you, bastards, unquote, is the mark of impotent men with no sense of mission and no faith to command themselves or others. When a century ago, Sir Samuel Baker took his beautiful and protected bride into the heart of Africa to search for the sources of the Nile, his companions were all pagan and murderous Arabs and blacks who determined to rob and kill the bakers at the first opportunity. They never did. Baker's sublime sense of mission and command held them in awe. At the least sign of trouble, he lectured them like an earnest Sunday school teacher, putting a disorderly class in its place. His aura of power was enough to command them. Western man now has instead an aura of fear and of greed. He thinks of himself only, and his only mission is self-security. He wants to be left alone to have privacy, his pleasures, and his own way. He cannot command himself, let alone a world. He can be in the majority in a country and still lose. Before he acts to defend anything, he asks himself, quote, Will they come after me if I lose? Unquote. When this is true, a man is already dead within, and already a prisoner. The Puritans, as against the usurping power of the king, 
Charles I, made their standard, quote, the crown rights of King Jesus, unquote. The Puritans, at their maximum strength, were 4% of England, but the crown rights of the monarchy fell before them. When they began to think more of the rights of their church and their interest than of Christ the King, the Puritans also failed. The key, thus, is return to a sense of Christian mission and to a faithful application of God's law to every area of life. St. Patrick's greatness was that in an age when the enemy was overrunning the land, St. Patrick overran the enemy. He set out to convert his enslavers and enemies, and he made of pagan Ireland one of the greatest Christian cultures the world has known and the great missionary force on the continent. More able men than St. Patrick failed because they hated and bewailed the savage enemy. St. Patrick converted and commanded them. Impotent men give impotent answers. Leave them alone and pass them by. God's regenerating power and His law give man power, estate, and calling. To be a redeemed man and to have God's laws, to have the plan of conquest and dominion and the power to execute it. Remember, too, before you call yourself a Christian that God has no impotent sons. He has suffering and sometimes martyred sons, but never impotent, and ultimately always victorious sons. There are hundreds of millions of peoples in communist countries who hate Marxists and wish them dead. Such people, impotent and self-destructive in their hatred, are easily cowed and controlled. The underground church is a far greater problem. It is busy trying to convert its oppressors and often succeeding. The communists realize that they have little to fear from hatred. It is too deeply grounded in fear to be other than impotent. It is Christian faith which is for them the menace. Quote, Holy fools, unquote, are aggressive and confident and everywhere at work. Well, where do you stand in all of this? Have you made it your mission to fear and to hate? We may hear from you then an angry, hateful, and of course anonymous note. Or is it your estate and calling to believe and obey the Lord and to exercise dominion in His name? Calcedon Report number 122, October 1975. Modern man has often little pleasure in work because he has no sense of estate and calling. Without this, work for him is meaningless and simply a chore to be performed. The changed view of work was rather sharply manifested in Massachusetts, once the home of the Puritans and their dedication to work, in a senatorial election of the 1960s. One candidate was Edward Moore Ted Kennedy. An opponent charged that Kennedy had never worked a day in his life, an accurate statement and one which he felt would disqualify Kennedy in the minds of the voters. The next day, an Irish working man expressed a popular sentiment to Kennedy, quote, Teddy, me boy, you haven't missed a thing, unquote. As Olson reports, quote, the election was a runaway. The opponent learned too late that Edward Moore Kennedy's appeal was precisely that he had never worked a day in his life, unquote. This placed him on a higher and princely plane. Jack Olson, The Bridge at Chappaquiddick, page 9, New York, Ace Books, 1970. 
In 19th century America, men who retired in good health or lived off inherited income often left the United States because the contempt for non-working, able-bodied men was very great. In 20th century America, such men became presidents and presidential candidates. The change is indeed a dramatic one. It is also an evidence of a radically different religious situation. The reality principle has given way to a pleasure principle. Men live to enjoy themselves, and work is an ugly necessity which hopefully civilization will eliminate. Remember, all over the world during the 1960s, rioting students charged that work was unnecessary and constituted a form of conspiracy to keep man enslaved. The lack of Christian faith has meant not only a decline in purposive activity or work, but also a radical lack of elementary standards. James Bacon commented this year in his column on the insanity resulting from a lack of standards. As it appears in, quote, sex magazines, unquote, heavily produced now in Europe and America. An advertisement in the, quote, personals, unquote, column of one such periodical read, quote, Couple who dig whips, branding irons, handcuffs, and snakes wants to meet new friends. No weirdos, please. Unquote. Los Angeles Herald Examiner, Monday, June 9, 1975, page A10. Where standards are gone, meaning is gone, and without meaning, work is pointless. Not surprisingly, the ancient proverb, quote, it is better to work for nothing than to sit idle, unquote, is very much forgotten today. Such a statement has meaning only in a world where purpose and activity can have meaning. All of this means that people find a candidate who does not need to work very appealing, having all the romance of Camelot and a storybook princes, as Olson noted, of Kennedy. It means that work begins to loom in their minds as a form of oppression. For the early socialists, such as Marx and Engels, the working man was by definition an oppressed man because he had to work for his living. The attitude has since become commonplace. Such an attitude towards work leads to a decline in productivity. It also leads to an invasion of work, to welfareism and drifting. In the United States in 1974 and 1975, the number of Americans supported by taxes, government employees, the disabled, servicemen, the unemployed, those on welfare, and those on Social Security comes to 80.65 million. Workers in the private sector number 71.65 million, and many of these are in services rather than production. As work declines in importance and the workers decline in numbers, society has two alternatives. The first, already in operation, is to compel by taxation and sometimes by totalitarian measures as well, the minority to support the majority or to put the non-working majority to work by compulsion. In the Soviet Union, the latter course prevails. There is technically no unemployment, but there is not much production either. Without the help of the West, the Soviet Union would collapse. The second possibility is radical collapse, as the whole society falls apart because it is both ungovernable and non-working. Both alternatives are ugly ones. The first is now operative, and the second 
a growing possibility. Neither offers any solution, only by a return to a theology of work, an example of a state and calling, and a theology of rest, or of the Sabbath, can man be both productive and relaxed. This means all the more urgent the reconstruction of all things in terms of a biblical faith, with a restored doctrine of a state and calling. Work is the key to dominion, and ultimately the productive and competent will survive in command. The modern perspective, which lionizes the non-working, F.D. Roosevelt, the Kennedys, Rockefeller, etc., is without a future. Its menace is that it can command people and their allegiance. Its failure is that it destroys productivity. To believe that the immediate future is a troubled one is common sense. To believe that the future is a doomed one for man is practical atheism. It is the denial that God's order governs creation and makes, in the long run, any condition of life untenable other than that which conforms to the law of God. We have been called not to defeat nor to slavery, but to victory and dominion. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushton. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus perfect sacrifice, the love He has by His pain the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where He died for you and me. Set you free. He 
The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.